When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about whether VIP packages at concerts are destroying music. We're also going to talk about new music from Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, Ariana Grande, and Macy Gray. And in Reader Mail, we're going to talk about the response to some of our recent stories on the Prince estate and Prince in the 90s. But first, today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now is brought to you by Stamps.com. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code MUSIC. Also sponsoring today's episode is Home Chef. You can create healthy meals at home with ingredients delivered right to your door. Visit homechef.com backslash Rolling Stone or use the code Rolling Stone at checkout for $30 off your first purchase. And that's uh, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, Free Stuff. This is our What We're Listening To segment. I'm here with associate editor Patrick Doyle. Hi. Hey. And Brittany Spanos, hey. staff writer. <laughs> hey. Patrick, you actually are working on a story yeah. on Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. So you've been listening to a, a lot to their new album. And you, you brought this song to the table. Can you tell me what's going on with them? I just thought it was an interesting song because it sort of tells you where the band is right now. Because they, they kind of broke through in 2009 with that song, Home. Home became one of the biggest songs of this, I guess, folk pop sort of boom that, that's coming. It was in like 500 commercials, yeah, yeah. often with mothers and babies. And like. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, exactly. And then and a lot of bands came after that, the Lumineers and uh, Mumford and & Sons. And I guess... I mean, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros were certainly a band of that like kind of late 2000s moment, early early 2010s. You know, they, there was that Big Easy Express movie right, yeah. with them on the road with Mumford and Sons yes. and Old Crow Medicine Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of these bands followed that. That's the, sort of what this, the band is taking credit for <laughs> here, and right. that they um, sort of started this whole thing. And now, you know, they're saying in the song "Free Stuff," everybody's stealing my ha ha. Everyone's stealing my ho ho. You know, <laughs> so, well, this is like a jam band hang. Over song, right? This, exactly, is like, yeah. this is like the five years later, like they've seen all these bands. Uh, obviously, the Lumineers, yeah. uh, their song, I'm sorry, Ha. Ho Hey. Ho Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Ho Hey was an enormous yeah. hit a few years ago. And of course, uh, of, of Monsters and Men. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Like a couple big songs. Yeah. You know, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros have been like playing, you know, festivals. Yeah, and Newport, Coachella, like, Fos- New, Fos- Yeah, Fos- Newport. Yeah, they're, they're a successful live band, but not at, like at that level. And so maybe Alex Ebert, the front man, is a little bitter about that now. I think so, yeah. I mean, he's a guy who has reinvented himself a few times. You know, he was in that, that band, like, I'm a Robot, in the, in the 
early 2000s right. and then he sort of reinvented himself as like a hippie journeyman type guy you know <laughs> but but he said he said to you like don't he doesn't like being called a hippie well, he said We've, the problem is everybody sees us as as this hippie band and just because of this song home and that's not what we are but I think that's pretty hippie-ish to me. But. Yeah, when you're on stage with nine people, banjos and trumpets and stuff. So, something about that reads hippie-ish and your yeah. hair up in man buns and like yeah. I mean, you know, go for it, man. Very communal. Everything about the band is um, they all have to have equal say. That was a that turned into a big problem for them. So then they've sort of tried to get away from that in this new album. And it's funny thinking about how much they affected that entire like sort of hippie freak folk movement affected beyond just folk music. Yeah. Like in EDM, suddenly there was banjo and exactly, guitar, and yeah. you have Avicii right. who Avicii, blew yeah. up with that sound and really started this like folk house movement and then we saw the end pop music and like this weird rise of singer songwriters again I feel like is a direct correlation or yeah I think from you, that. I think you're totally right. Yeah. I think you can draw a line between that mm-hmm. and that kind of the Edward Sharp and that generation and people like you know Ed Sheeran and then yeah. You know. Yeah like One Direction. I mean like having a boy band make folk music was definitely a huge yeah. insp- like was hugely inspired by a lot of what Edward Sharp and Mumford and all those bands after yeah. really made. The problem is I guess when you're sort of associated with a certain time that yeah. it becomes dated, you know, five years later, right. like mm-hmm. with um the first episode of Girls uh, last yeah. season, Marty gets married. She gets a flower crown. Um, and they're sort of saying, why, uh, the mom's like, why, why the hell would you do that? And she said, well, it's, I saw it in the Edward Sharp video. And then <laughs> Lena Dunham said, in the recaps at the end, she said that it was so perfect. Like, some Marty likes music from, like, three summers ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right. Right. So uh, the band's been through a lot. Like, the other singer, Jade, who he was in a relationship, left the band mm-hmm. or got kicked out by email a week before the tour, depending on who you are. Who you ask? <laughs> so the band is sort of in a weird place right I now. I think they just need to break it down and build it back up. I yeah, think that's I, what I they're going to do. That sounds like <laughs> the magnetic yeah. zeros are coming for theirs. <laughs> no, yeah, and it is just the magnetic zeros now, not mm-hmm. Edward Sharp and the magnetic zeros. Oh, really? Zeros. Yeah, didn't yeah. he like cross it out on yes. the album cover? It's like red bar over Edward Sharp. Well, I think Alex Ebert probably just got sick of being called Edward Sharp. <laughs> People right? probably yeah. just thought it was, it was like, his name now. It. <laughs> right. But we had to kill Ziggy Stardust. He right. has to kill Edward Sharp. <laughs> right. All right, guys. Good luck with that. Brady, you, you've been listening to the new Ariana Grande album a lot. Yeah. Lately. And there's one song you pulled out, Leave Me Lonely, which I'm enjoying with, with uh, Macy Gray. Yeah. So she just released her third album, Dangerous Woman, Ariana Grande did. There's a lot of different styles happening, but she's such a great jazzy singer and like whenever she's belting it always really shined and so Leave Me Lonely is definitely my favorite song from the album. It has the most surprising feature which is Macy Gray who has been who kills it on this yeah. song yeah she definitely is very like Nina Simone-ish um it sort of struck me in the same way that Rihanna's feature on Famous off of the life of Pablo really struck me just like her voice is just like really gritty and rough sort of next to Ariana's which is more like pure and a little bit more like angelic so it's kind of like this like angel devil yeah it's a good contrast situation yeah Nothing frightens me, baby. Oh. 
I like it when kind of young pop singers sometimes go for like the one retro song on their mm-hmm. album. Like Selena Gomez had a couple kind of retroish songs, even one of the singles. Yeah. You know, it's like an acknowledgement. Like you don't have to do the same thing 20 times over. Yeah. You know, there are only three to five songs. If you're really lucky, maybe five songs that are going to be big singles. Mm-hmm. So why not do something a little different? I mean, this yeah. one kind of sounds almost like, it's almost like double retro. It's almost like sounds a little bit like Alicia Keys, mm-hmm. you know, super early Alicia Keys, you know, which was trying to sound like something a little earlier than that, <laughs> you know, but it totally works. Yeah, I mean, she, I mean, a lot of the songs, Chris Weingart in his review, described them as like Bond-ish songs. Right, totally. I mean, that was the first thing that people heard when they heard Dangerous Woman, the title track. And then the opening song, Moonlight, has this sort of 60s um, loungy sound. So she definitely shines when she lets that through and like lets her retro side through. Believe Me Lonely is probably the most modern version on it where it doesn't sound kitschy or sound like right. she's like trying too hard to fit into a different decade but it definitely has the influence there right so for sure. how did yeah. she go about getting macy gray or why did she get macy gray for this um well she actually macy gray had just gone into an interview um because i spoke with her last week right before the album came out and she had just gone into an interview with um republic records and they were looking for a vocalist on the song and so she just she loved the song so much and she was a huge fan of ariana so she decided to sign up for it and so now she's actually working with the one of the songwriters and the producer Tommy Brown on Macy Gray's new album so we'll see if that sort of has any effect and, if, and it's yeah. interesting like at least a couple decades in like Macy Gray's voice has changed like she's a little mm-hmm. more smoothed out on the, she doesn't she used to have that incredible like raspy voice and now she's yeah. like grown into this as you said like Nina Simone almost yeah she's been working on a lot of jazz stuff lately yeah. so I think that's been such a huge influence you can definitely hear it in her phrasing and style now totally well, Brittany Spanos, Patrick Doyle, thanks for coming on. Thank, Thank you, you. Thanks, Nathan. How great would it be if the post office were open 24-7? Me and Andy Green could go there after shows in Williamsburg. But with Stamps.com, you can actually get your mailing and shipping done on your own time right now. Stamps.com will save you the time and hassle of going to the post office. You can use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. You can get exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying. There's also a special offer. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code MUSIC and get a four-week trial, which includes a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MUSIC. That's Stamps.com, and enter MUSIC. Generals gathered in their masses just like witches at black masses and that's war pigs from black sabbath who are one of the many bands going on tour this summer and offering vip packages which are a bigger and bigger part of the summer tour scene i have here andy green associate editor hey andy and jason newman hello music news editor hey jason how are you we're going to talk about whether vip packages are ruining music Guys, yeah. well, first, Andy, can yeah. you tell me, give me a little sure. bit of context here. Why, sure. why have these things become a I, bigger and bigger deal? I think what's happened is until 20 years ago or so, you would tour to promote your album. It was seen as a long promotional thing. And tickets would cost like 50 bucks at the most, but they weren't trying to wring every cent out of these shows. Now that album sales are down to almost zero, bands are getting the vast, vast majority of their income through their tours. So there's more pressure than ever yeah, on more, the on yeah. the tour to make money. Yeah, so they're finding ways to get every cent out of it that they can, and they're realizing that they hadn't really turned backstage access and sound check stuff into profits before. 
They, there are if a lot of, I was a hedge fund guy, I would say they hadn't fully monetized. They had not. Their there are concerts. a lot of people that really want to have thirty seconds with Gene Simmons or watch Peter Gabriel soundcheck or something, and they weren't making money off that. They realized that there's a lot more ways to make money off of a show. In the past few years, it's just gone crazy. With, right. With these packages, I feel like each summer they find more ways to charge more money for people, and they're selling. So it's just going to keep going. Do you have a sense of who got really good at it first? Like when I remember hearing about gold circles, maybe right. I don't know a decade or yeah, two it ago. Used to maybe? just yeah. be there would be one price for the entire venue. And then they figured out tiered pricing. Hey, you know, the people will pay more for the first few rows than the last few rows. And that then, was really the case? Like you really yeah. only – you paid the same thing for the nosebleeds if you were Back seeing the police in, the, in 1983. We're doing 60s and 70s. Right. Some bands still do that at the Pearl Jam show. It's the same for the whole place. But by the 90s, there started to be like five tiers. And then the term gold circle was coined right. where you pay a lot more for the first few rows. I remember Elton John had a pretty early yeah, gold circle. It was sort of the mid-90s. The Eagles are always blamed for it for crossing the three Everybody threshold. wants to blame everything yeah. on the Eagles, <laughs> right? It's, just, Don, it's yeah. justified, I think, in this case, it, though. As Don Henley always says, it's half unfair, at right. least, that at that same time, there was Billy Joel and Elton John playing stadiums. There was Pink Floyd at stadiums. There was sort of the super, super tour was beginning, like the Stones Voodoo Lounge. You know, and then the kids reunion tour, all these things started happening at once. As you had, say, baby boomer audiences growing older and getting yeah, more money and right. being willing to pay for like a nice night out yeah. versus also, just, you know, it, sitting in a seat in Madison Square Garden in the 20th row. It was also less focused on the people that would go to shows, you know, multiple times a week or multiple times a month. And it's really, they kind of switched it and shifted from that to the people that'll do you know, two shows a year, three right. shows a year. It's kind of more of like uh, taking the place of like the theater right. almost. Where it's right. now it's now completely for them, for people who do it two or three times a year, this very event-based thing who don't mind spending, you know, three, four figures to go to the experience for the experience. Your average KISS fan in 1977 was 14 years old and had no money. But 20 years later, he's in his 30s or whatever. He has money to spend. He's very nostalgic. And to go backstage and meet Gene and Paul, he'll pay big for that. Let's cut to today. What are the most outrageous VIP packages out there? I know like Coachella is a whole other level. People you know, right. get trailers. They get whole area, bungalow areas with hot tubs and <laughs> palm trees. And you know, I might be exaggerating. Like air conditioning, yeah, Air sure. conditioning. All you, that stuff. You can pay $10,000 a weekend easily or more, right. much more. Yeah. So, Andy, you, you recently wrote a piece, uh, kind of a survey of this stuff. But I know, Jason, you were eager to mention like one of the recent uh, additions to the VIP uh, yeah. package. Yeah. So a lot of this, you know, a lot of the packages are rock and pop based, um, but some of them, there's more hip hop stuff. And there's a Six God, uh, Drake, obviously, a meet and greet package. All right, so this is the Drake package for his upcoming tour with Drake and Future, and this is called the Six God package. It's called the Six God meet and greet package. The Six, of course, is Toronto. Right. Okay. So instead of paying, you know, 100 or 150 to see Drake, you can actually pay 1,000, and you get tickets in the first five rows, which is great, but it also comes with a photo with Drake, which is nice, but then they just threw in a bunch of stuff that you would get at a 99-cent store and charge $1,000. So it comes with an incense holder, a candle, a picture frame, a foam hand, a car freshener, a, foam hand. a yeah. car freshener, and a floaty pen. 
um, whatever wow. the fuck a floaty pen is. Um, <laughs> Wait, is this exclusive stuff? Can this stuff be bought anywhere else? I, I, guess I, I would seen, ask that question if I was looking yeah. at the Six God package. You know, I have no idea where else to buy a car freshener or a foam hand, so yeah, I think right. this is 100% <laughs> well, exclusive. It's a money. Drake car freshener. It's, it's not right. any car freshener. This is not, and this is not Drake actually handing this to you. This yeah. is just a bunch of cheap tchotchke shit. But, so what but I, the fact you are, yeah. you are meeting Drake, too. You are so, meeting Drake. Yeah. You get a professionally yeah. taken I'm not going to defend the Six God package, but... That's fair. Yeah. But it does seem like what they're doing sort of is they have these kind of in- legitimately incredible things like that fans would love. But then it's also this sort of right. addition to like, yeah. well, what else can we throw in? Someone it's sort on of- their branding team needs to Look. just say like, okay, just stop. Okay, gotta, we don't need the air freshener. Let's, I got, let's, let's not hurt the six god. I got a TurboGrafx sixteen for Hanukkah, right? <laughs> but I also got sweatpants and pens. Right. And I also had to tell my parents, you don't need the sweatpants and pens. You got the TurboGrafx. You've yeah. done your parental job. Leave right. me alone. You only the, need the little tchotchke if you're getting a gift that's not that good, like right. kind of a little bonus gift to put it over exactly. the top. But if you're getting to meet Drake, you probably don't need it. Exactly. This right. is the this is the you you know, this is a grown up equivalent of the first seven days of Hanukkah. Right. And the eighth <laughs> right. day of Hanukkah is tickets in the photo with Drizzy. Right. Right. Did you get Box Adventure too? I got Box Adventure and Bloody Wolf, and that'll be for next week's podcast. Okay. We'll, we'll that get for, into that. Yeah. I have many thoughts on that. Yeah. Jason just got back from vacation, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Still in that mood. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Andy, uh, tell me what else is out there. Yeah. There's the Beyonce tour has many packages, but the top one is the Bay First package. <laughs> That's for a mere $1,505. There's extra five they threw in. You get a reserved front row seat. And a pre-show party with booze and food and themed decor. They didn't explain what the theme was, just themed. Then you get a souvenir seat back cover where you have your own seat cover you can take home. You have your own parking I'm space. I'm seeing an automotive theme yeah. here with some of the packages. And my favorite for this one is crowd-free merchandise shopping. It means you can buy <laughs> her T-shirts for $55 right. a T-shirt ever and have no other annoying fans near you. So you get the luxury of buying the merchandise by yourself. But what you don't get is Beyonce for even a second. Yeah, that, that's, that was my question Yeah, because there's certain yeah. artists that no matter how much they're going to get paid, they're like, I'm not spending two hours before the show shaking you know, like fans' hands. I'm right. not going to do that. So, you're, yeah, you're looking at, you know, it's 50% more than the Six God package. Right. But Beyonce is not going to be at this pre-show no. reception. And you're basically just getting the ability to buy a lot of T-shirts without being yeah. rushed. But the front row right. seat is no right. small thing. Right. That's, that, right. that's a nice let's thing. Not, it, let's not It has this that. really interesting, between that and, and other artists, has this yeah. really interesting idea of like image crafting. Like, yeah. is it better for your image to stay mysterious and not be involved in this? Or is yeah. it better for your image to actually meet, you know, there's other packages yeah. where you can actually meet the people and yeah. it's a little more fan interaction. Right. It's kind of cool to like think about where the line is yeah. and which artist is actually... Everything is all image, obviously. So it's how you're cultivating your image versus right, like right. meeting fans or not. Whereas you know? Justin Bieber, he just bailed on his meet and greets. He was doing them for on the first like 20 shows, then was like, I can't do this. This is too much stress. Right. I'm being okay. driven crazy by all these right. people. I, th- I think no, no matter what side you come down on yeah. in terms of the star yeah. or no star, you can't. That's probably a bad idea. What, just, it, yeah, just not. Yeah, he like, said he was getting raising exhausted the expectation for shows. that you're going right. to see Justin Bieber and then not they going. Pull, yeah, you're well, pretty unhappy if I, you're at that 21st show. I, yeah, I think Stalker starts showing up and everything. I mean, right. it's a weird scene. Those yeah, meet The security is pretty good. I, I'm, but, sh- uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure for Justin Bieber, he's he's taken care of. Then the next one was Guns N' Roses. There's the Welcome to the Jungle Pit experience. Welcome to the Jungle Pit. <laughs> Where for $1,750, you get a spot in the GA Pit. You get a backstage tour. 
and a chance to ask questions to select members of the GNR crew. Let's so, do, oh, so that's a roadie. That's Unnamed. a roadie. So okay. you Unnamed. can't even yeah. meet, like, keyboard is Dizzy Reed for a second. You can you won't even see Duff from a distance. You get to talk to a crew member. <laughs> Which, I, think, I think they could offer up Dizzy yeah, Reed. Yeah, yeah. it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm sure Dizzy would happily say hello to the fans if he was told to. You could backstage to the Paradise City Backstage Lounge, which I'm sure is great. There's a party <laughs> area with a photo booth and a chance to play in a GNR trivia contest. All so right. You, to be fair, Dizzy runs the trivia contest. Yeah. So, I <laughs> mean, let's right. not go. He still has other <laughs> jobs to do. an onstage photo before the show. So you get a right. meet and greet with the empty stage. All right. That's, I mean, I guess that's something. That's a pretty good photo, I and, guess. About the Paradise City Backstage Lounge. Yeah. Do you think it's a fair assessment that maybe Taylor Swift pioneered naming no, backstage lounges? The East is Street this? Lounge predates Taylor's no. tours by Okay, a the lot. East Street Lounge. Yeah. I'm, re- I'm forgetting the name of her backstage lounge. I'm but sure it, it's different each tour, perhaps. Right. Theme to it. What often happens is there's so many VIPs at some of these shows, but they can't overwhelm the artists. So they, so, so they put together like some lounge that's for like their dentist and everything with a cash bar. Right. And they call some fancy name, but it's usually pretty lame. Do you know if Taylor Swift does these? Too? She does meet and greets, but she doesn't charge for them. Right. I think she does the media meet and greet and the general meet and greet. And it's like fans that have great costumes or great stories or something. And I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure that she just does it for fun and to be a good person right. and not charging. Because she, she's making such a mint off these shows anyway. She doesn't need it. Right. Further squeezer fans. And then the Black Sabbath tour has the ultimate experience package, which isn't a great name. But for $2,500, you get a reserved front row seat and a sound check, a photo with all three members of the band. Okay. So you're paying, all right, you're paying considerably more than you would be for the Beyonce or Guns N' Roses, but you're getting. Front wow. row picture, and, and then and that's Ozzy, Geezer, and Tony. And Tony, all and three. This that's next pretty good. Thing, it's, it's, it, but it gets crazier. You get to go into Ozzy's dressing room and ask him anything you want, and film it on your cell phone. All right, sold, <laughs> so, sold. So for fans, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Do you think Bill Ward has to pay for this? <laughs> yeah, oh. yeah, this is the one chance that that's Bill Ward the drummer has who to get out yeah. of the band yeah. for people. Yeah, at it's home. the only okay. chance to be near the backstage is to is is to pay for it. And then there's a pre-show reception with open. Bar and an on-site VAP host. Maybe so, that's Bill Ward. Yes, Bill Ward. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, so, that might be Bill Ward. They hire people that are these VAP hosts whose whole job is to bring these fans around and make sure they don't bother anybody, but you know, have a nice experience. That feels like the best value so far. That's the best value. And if you, if, you believe, like, if you believe Black Sabbath, this is their last tour, and it, you know, by all accounts, it appears that this will be their last tour. So I think it actually, maybe I'm naive, but it's less about squeezing, and it is about actually, you know, this is kind of their last run. Like, you know, let's let's all right. make it a good one. You know, all right. And it's about squeezing. Too. Well, and yeah. squeezing. Too. <laughs> <laughs> it's a squeezing with love. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, now we're going to get to this. This is the, yeah. the big dog of these, the, the four packages the that you wrote about. Uh, this is the Nick Jonas Demi Lovato tour. Hello. Yeah. It's called the Ultimate VIP Dressing Room Package for $10,000. You and three friends get a dressing room backstage and your own rider. So you only have your own dressing room. So you get to, to request rider. brown M&Ms. Yes. And- yeah, your own rider. And Jonas and Lovato will visit you in your dressing room to, quote, say hi, sign items, and take photos. So they stop by and say hello, get access to a side stage lounge, a poster they both sign. A a stage side lounge? Really? I've never heard of something quite phrased like that. I'm sure it's lovely. 
and dinner and tour catering, which I've been to lots of <laughs> tour catering <laughs> concerts. That's the last bullet point. <laughs> it sounds was. cool to be in tour catering. It's like dorm style food at best. I You're would like, stick to your rider food. Yeah, I you know. should ask for rider food. Right. Uh, tour catering is always horrible, with very few exceptions. Wow. But, all, right, all right, but that's a lot of money, but it's <laughs> you and three friends. So that breaks down to $2,500 right. per person. And the, and this, well, or a dad and three children. Right. I wonder how it works with the parents. Right. 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 I'm guessing right. most cities, they sell zero of these, right? I mean, because they're doing like 50 arenas. You're telling me in like Sioux City, there's going to be someone going to cough up 10 grand? Well, I think you make a good point, though, Jason. I mean, the yeah. people who are going to be buying these are going to be parents. Oh, yeah. For right. sure. And well, they're the, like, if you're like, a wealthy parent, you're going to make your kid's life. With and it. I will say the one thing about the Jonas and Lovato one is yeah. that it is $10,000, but it really is like a once in a lifetime experience. If you yeah. want to buy your children's love, sure. uh, then this but is really the chance to do it. Even like a Mark Cuban or some really billionaire parents would say to their kids, are you fucking kidding me? $10,000. That's not happening. Right. Maybe. Well, I don't know, and maybe not. Well, I'm uh, sure there, I, I'm sure some will sell, but I would love to see the numbers of how much right. money they're actually this, making. This, this one thing. does kind of, yeah, you're right. There is something about there's a little bit of a kind of Kickstarter campaign type thing with this, where it's just like the escalating numbers, and it's yeah. like, okay, give me a hundred thousand dollars, and right. I'll make you. You can yeah. move in with me. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I guess the the final question is just like you know, what are these are these things kind of you know. Anti? Are they anti-rock? Are they anti-music? Yeah. Do they spoil the fun I mean, of concerts? I was just interviewing. Mike, I was just interviewing Mike McCready at Pearl Jam, and I brought these up, and he started laughing, and and, and, and he told me that they would never do that because some artists feel it's just ripping off their fans. You know that of course the fans are dying to come meet them, but to monetize that to some people it just feels cheesy. I mean, like Springsteen would never do it. You know, there's a lot of people. Yeah, that I can't imagine do Axel doing anything for money. So <laughs> yeah, this but is really. He doesn't have to do anything though. He just takes the money. He, you know, he doesn't have to go pose for 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 pictures. And those picture things that I've seen them happen. You, you get one half of one second. They have some huge beefy guy behind them that just drags them to the next person. It's right. just boom, 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 boom. It, it is interesting though, to see the scale about like oh, so if Nick and Demi Lovato are ten thousand dollars, it's going to be interesting to see. How? Because there's really this doesn't exist in a normal economy, right? This is this <laughs> right. is not a regular thing. This is a th- something where it's for the ultra rich. So yeah, this right. can this could conceivably go as high as the rich will be willing to pay. So right. I think ten thousand. It's very possible that a year or two from now, the ten thousand will be the base minimum, and we'll be <laughs> yeah. laughing. You know, we'll be like, oh, remember when right. Six Guy was, was selling was so fucking quaint. foam yeah. hand? Yeah. Like that won't exist anymore. Now it's going to be. Uh, I like remember 20, the good old days right. when you could see. Yeah, well, only thousand dollars. I can right. meet Drake in his then, foam. Hand and incense holder. <laughs> the ultimate VIP packages are when people pay the Stones five million dollars to come play uh, their birthday party and stuff. Right, the way that happens too. That's the next level when they come to your house. Right, right. So that would be the equivalent. Like right. if these people who are buying these packages are staying are yeah. like in business class or first class, that would be right. the equivalent of flying private, flying right. private by yeah. actually having the Stones at your house. And if you are a human yeah. rights violating dictator who is interested in that and <laughs> listening to the podcast. <laughs> Turkmenistan, I'm looking at you. Yeah. Uh, you can certainly inquire about any of <laughs> there this There are stuff. booking agents out yeah. there who will definitely pick up the phone That's if right. you call. They're agents, all right. So it goes. <laughs> and with that, Andy Green, thanks for coming on. Of course. Jason Newman, you too. Thank you. And that's it for VIP packages. We'll see you next summer. <laughs> yep, see you then. All right, well, now that we've made fun of tour catering, we're going to read a little message from our new sponsor, Home Chef. With Home Chef, you get all the fresh ingredients you need, plus instructions to cook restaurant-grade meals in under 30 minutes, delivered straight to your door weekly. 
Recipe cards with step-by-step instructions make cooking accessible and help you learn new and fun techniques. And you can cook chef-driven, healthy, restaurant-grade dinners in a flash. No more waiting in line in the grocery store, planning out what to cook, or resorting to takeout. Each meal is under $10, which is more affordable than the grocery store. So give Home Chef a try and visit homechef.com slash Rolling Stone or use the code Rolling Stone at checkout for $30 off your first purchase. Rediscover home cooking with Home Chef. And we're back. That was Bob George from Prince's Black Album. This is the reader mail segment of today's episode, and I'm here with David Brown to talk about some of the Prince stories he's been writing lately. David, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here, Nathan. We played the, a song from the Black Album because one of the stories you wrote is about what's left in Prince's vaults. There's some contentiousness over who's going to inherit the vaults, and there's a lot of siblings, but... The big question is kind of what's in there. Well, how much is actually in there? You know, it depends who you ask. You know, I spoke with one, I spoke to a number of people who worked at Paisley Park and who actually were even in the vault, which is this room in the basement of Paisley Park that you you have to get past one locked door and then, then there's a little entryway and then there's this huge like bank vault sized door complete with a spinning handle like an actual huge bank vault. We use the term vaults a lot, you know, but yeah. there isn't it, often a legit vault. This is and an there actual is, yeah. legit vault to which supposedly Prince had the only combination as well to add the mystery of it. And no one, first of all, nobody remembers seeing a real... Um, Wait, so how did they get in after the, he died? Well, they're, they're going to have to drill into it, they think. But right now, the last thing I heard is that they're trying to find the locksmiths. They don't want to actually have to drill in you know, th- there were reports that they had drilled in, and that's, right. those are not true. Wow. That, there's, that they're still trying to find a legitimate way that somebody's got to know right. <laughs> how to get in there. Right. Uh, and inside, there's these floor-to-ceiling uh, shelves with just tons of tapes, and some of them are cataloged and some aren't. Um, you know, I spoke with people who, you know, went in there with Prince back in the day, and, and you know, they'd spend all this time looking for one song. And, oh, there's, there'd be a tape reel sitting there with, like, Batman outtakes written on it. And, and you know, just this haphazardly uh, all arranged. And so the big question now that he's passed away is uh, who will ultimately be in charge of that? Right now there's a special um, administrator. It's a bank that has legal possession. But at some point somebody probably uh, in the music business will get a handle of it. It will will start the process of plowing through it. And I've heard estimates from, you know, 10 complete albums sitting in there to 200. You know, like that's how, that's how, and these are people who work there. That's why, that's how mysterious it is. (laughs) Um, So, but, you know, Prince had this habit of, he had three recording studios at Paisley Park and he had them all going at once and he could record the whole album in a day or two and then, get really excited, and then go, eh, nah, never mind, and tapes in the vault. And then you move on to something else. And, you you know, you, you go over 20, 25 years of that. It's a lot of music sitting in there. I remember after he died, we talked to Lenny Kravitz, and he talked about how they were just always recording. He, it, he went to visit Paisley Park, and it seemed like every movement of his was being recorded, and that just yeah. none of it ever appeared. So that's just one Example of it. And, and the great rumor, which one of his musicians somewhat confirmed to me, was that he had microphones in the bathrooms. 
And so you have to be <laughs> okay, really careful getting into Chuck Berry about what you're saying. Yeah. And I guess at one point, Prince, uh, this musician who was a member of the New Power Generation, did hear that Prince had a recording of the New Power Generation guys in the bathroom bitching about Prince. And oh, Prince man. would listen back to it and laugh. That's a different so. kind of vault, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we got uh, a lot of letters. I'm just going to read one for your uh, Prince, uh, the vault story. This is one from a reader with the username J.R. Bowen. Uh, I hope someone with a, with a genuine love and understanding of what made Prince's music so great will be given the task of exploring his unreleased material and releasing them in a respectful and reverential way. Kurt Cobain's releases, like the box set with the metal cover and He Hated Metal, Jimi Hendrix's 70s releases with unnecessary overdubbing, even Elvis's piecemeal collections since 1977, all were poor quality releases. Please ask the fans... We pretty much know what there is, what would sell, and what would continue his legacy. I mean, I, I, um, I don't agree with every single point that JR makes, but I, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of botched reissues out there, uh, and uh, a lot of people's catalogs have been kind of all over the place, and, and it definitely does an artist a disservice. So I, I agree with his general point. I, I hope he does, uh, somebody does take control of Prince's stuff. You, you hope so. You hope they don't just grab somebody doesn't just grab unfinished tracks and say, "Oh, let's add some you know new tracks onto this to kind of make it sound modern." It's hard to know with music how much people are messing with tracks. Right. But uh, moving on to your story about Prince in the '90s, you tell me a little bit about what was in this this piece. Yeah, it, you know that period of his uh, life and career has always really fascinated me because it started with such promise. You know, in 1990, he had. He had a new manager, he had a new band, he was just about to roll out Graffiti Bridge, he was just coming off the Batman record. It seemed like there was a, uh, Paisley Park was finally up and running as a real studio. And, you know, as we all saw, I mean, that decade really became, you know, uh, to use the title of one of his records then, Chaos and Disorder. You know, he ended up warring with his record company and eventually firing that band that was a really good band. And changing his name to an unpronounceable symbol and, right. and and writing slave on his face to protest his contract with Warner Brothers and he had his marriage and some personal stuff that was chaotic and and so um you know I just tracked down a bunch of members of New Power Generation his, his people who worked with him in record company or managerial positions as well and and just kind of tried to to lay out that story and um about what it was like to deal with that crazy world of Prince at that right, time. And right, right. It was, uh, it was it, you know, I felt it was kind of an untold story. And it was, I, I, I think so. It was definitely that transitional time when he was kind of coming off of the 80s megastardom and hadn't kind of settled down like he did in the 2000s into this kind right. of, like, legend phase. He was still being incredibly productive, and, and there were some great records in there, like the Gold Experience and Calm are great records, and then there's a lot of stuff that wasn't so great. So it was, uh, it was an interesting uh, experience to hear... You know, stories of people, you know, uh, about, like, say, the bathroom, (laughs) the bathroom recordings. And, you know, he had that band and everyone around him just on call at all time. If you were on tour with him, you brought your stage clothes back, you know, with you. uh, you had it with you at all time because after a show, he might want you to go right to a club. And then after the club, you might have to go, you know, the wee hours of the morning into the studio to record. It was just, like, constant you know, on uh, on your toes, activity right. with that guy. Well, you got a lot of letters for this story. Let's uh, read some of them. One is from a uh, username, Tom Worthington. Prince's biggest mistake was signing that extended contract with Werner's in the early 90s. He made himself a slave by doing that and then realized it was too late. 
I never understood at the time why he did that and gave up his creative freedom and flexibility, but maybe it was a money thing, but probably the worst move of his entire career. It's true, Tom Worthington echoes Prince's idea of himself as a slave, uh, but he, you know, he he had a good history with Warner's. He did a lot of things with them in the in the eighties, right? I mean, he was on Warner Brothers for for all those those huge Purple Rain he records. Was, yeah, yeah. He started in the late seventies, and he was with them, you know, pretty much till mid to late nineties. And you know, from speaking with say, you know, one of his managers in the early nineties, uh, who saw a lot of that firsthand, those interactions, he he didn't understand it himself. He said Warner Brothers loved Prince. They treated him. Like like royalty, no pun intended, and they, they let him do whatever he wanted. He wanted to make all these mo- movies and records and pump out all this stuff. And, and we know, don't know the details, but it's true. Warner Brothers at the time had a pretty good reputation as an artist's label, and I'm sure they did. and Prince did. I don't know what the numbers are. I don't know if you you do either, but uh, I'm sure he did get paid for re-upping that contract. I mean, he. He he did, and and you know his record sales started to fall off at the same time, and right. I think maybe and Graffiti Bridge was was a bomb, so I think there was some frustration on his part about um, about his commercial success at, during that period. He also you know, according to one of the ex managers, was was angry that Warner's owned the masters, and which confused me because I thought well. That's standard music right. business practice. Whether it's good or not, it is what it is. And I said, well, didn't anyone explain that to Prince in 1978? Uh, this manager wasn't working with him in 1978, but that was apparently a point of contention, though. Prince wanted to get, which he eventually did just a few years ago with Warner's. Prince right. resigned with the label, and he got a lot of those masters finally back. And he but became a real champion of artists holding on to their masters. He did. And a lot of the things that he advocated back then, even you know, releasing music digitally and stuff have, have come to pass. So he was, right. in many ways, he was pretty forward-thinking. But I think at the time, he was he was pretty frustrated with things. And uh, well, One thing that Questlove said in his tribute that he wrote for us after Prince died was that one thing that you know, Prince was super uh, hung up on or, or just concerned about was control. I mean, control was kind of everything to him, and he was somebody who would prefer to be in control even if it meant doing something that maybe later would be proved wrong it was more important for him to have the control over his life right. and and he made and i think that's the time the 90s is the time when he asserted control over the business side of his career yeah i think that's true and you know i asked a bunch of people who worked with him then you know who who said no who was who was his sounding board and the only person they ever anyone could name uh, whose name came up regularly was the manager that he had up until about 1988 and then he fired that guy he, he since passed away that that manager he, and he was probably the only one who could control prince in that way and once he was out of the picture you know prince either managed himself or right. you know i mean there are these stories of him like popping up in the offices of vh1 in the mid 90s to play his videos for the executives himself, right? You know, and things like that. You right. know, where uh, that's normal, not what an artist does, right? Here's a letter from a user named Metroid Kong. <laughs> Fascinating read here. As a teenager in the '90s, I was most familiar with this era of Prince. I fell in love with his 90s music first, particularly Symbol album and The Gold Experience. The music has an anger and frustration about it that none of his other work ever quite captured. You could tell he was pissed off, but it kind of suited the time period anyway with the rise of alt-rock 
and gangster rap. His image as a borderline crazy person slash troubled artiste then also appealed to me as a teen. I think his 90s work is due for a reevaluation. It was just as brilliant as his 80s work, just different. Well, I'd say Metroid Kong is probably in the minority there in terms of like 90s versus 80s work, but it's it's you definitely see this a lot. I think with music, you know, you you find artists at the time in your life when you find them, and then you're able to see a lot of this stuff in a way that people who are you know previously familiar with their other stuff aren't. Right. And I think he makes a good point about you know, especially Gold Experience is a right. fine record. And, and yeah, I mean, you're right. When that music that you hear as a teenager is is, is so powerful, and it really stays with you. It really in ways that I think music you might hear later in life doesn't, you know, right. it's just at that period of your life. And, and you know, it's interesting to read a, a comment like that from Metroid Kong about, I just like saying Metroid, <laughs> uh, uh, that those records in the 90s that so many other people disparage, you know, uh, the, uh, speak to him in that way. And it's interesting to make that. I mean, I think he's right. There is a lot of anger and, 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 and uh, dissatisfaction in, in that music. I, I think it's maybe coincidental that it was at the same time as gangster rap. But right. it certainly reflected you know, what was going on in Prince's head. Here's another perspective on his 90s stuff. This is from the username, a little less fun to say, JGB979. Uh, I think the biggest difference between his 90s work and what people think of as classic prints is the real instruments versus the synth-heavy arrangements he pioneered and are mostly played on the radio. The presence of Tony M. doesn't help matters, as he's... Uh, by Tony M, he means... The rapper who was in New Power Generation. Oh, right, 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 of course. Tony M, the, the rapper that he pulled in, <laughs> who, who, let's say, was much maligned at the yeah, time as yes. kind of a second-rate rapper. Yeah. Uh, the presence of Tony M doesn't help matters, but he's responsible for some of the absolute worst things Prince ever released. Slash Jughead in parens. Furthermore, from Emancipation on, he stopped innovating and focused on just being a craftsman. That being said... Love Symbol and especially the Gold Experience are absolutely fantastic and are completely underrated additions to his catalog. You can't even buy the Gold Experience today, and it's easily in my personal top three. You know, I, so I another fan and, of the Symbol album and Gold Experience. I, I went back and listened to uh, some of that stuff, you know, for the story, and, and the Gold Experience. I totally agree. I mean, that one, I liked it at the time, but I just hadn't played it much recently, and that's a really terrific record because. It, what sets it apart from a lot of other Prince records is he really recorded that with the whole band. You know, it's like him interacting with musicians. Prince would often, as we know, play a lot of the stuff himself. He'd use musicians just on a track here or there. But pretty much that whole album was him playing with this great band. He had this great drummer and the guitar players. And, and like the music is just Purple kind of Rain, alive. He had in a, a real way, band, yeah. In a way that, you know, it, it wasn't always. And, and the songs, you know, weren't all his best, but but it's just a terrific sounding record for that period. And, and it, it is a shame. It's, uh, it's hard to get some of the stuff now. but Well, it sounds like it's due for a reappraisal. In the new issue, we also have a, uh, a guide to some of Prince's best albums uh, by Joe Levy, which I encourage people to check out if they're interested in the different tiers of Prince albums. We also have a special edition, uh, kind of a collector's-only uh, edition, um, coming out completely devoted to Prince, which I encourage people to check out too. Which has uh, all the old archival stories right it has all the archival stories and also like a guide to all, all of his albums and the making of a lot of his albums it's definitely for the for the total prince fan yeah so uh but anyway david brown thanks for coming on thanks nathan great to be here all right 
And if you like what you heard, please leave a review for Rolling Stone Music Now. That's it for today. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.